0: ending of our second full day and night of practice. Just noticing how we are. Reflecting on the the unfolding of the path of practice unfolding of the way as uh, Ajahn Chah expressed on that first night the uh, first we learn but we've not yet understood then we understand but we've not yet practiced and we practice but we've not yet seen the truth of the dharma. Then we see the dharma, but we've not yet become the dharma. It's gradual unfolding of the path, starting with learning, starting with the theory. And then understanding the theory, the sense of the theory making sense so that there's confidence sense of proper grasp of the theory that confidence gives rise to energy where we then can put that theory into practice as we put the theory into practice then there's the opportunity to experience with ourselves some results that deepens our faith deepens our confidence in the path when we start to sense hmm, yes So this particular aspect of the theory that we've been looking at, contemplating, practicing these first couple of days is this idea of viveka, or retreat, sometimes translated as seclusion. Sometimes translated as detachment, that's a little more problematic. But removing—I like that translate—removing ourselves from the, from being right in the freeway of the normal glittering lights, of the seductions of the sense desires. That's it's, it's not the same as being at Dhammagiri as being at the uh, what's the name of that place gateway, the Mshlunga Mall, used to be one of the largest malls in the Southern Hemisphere. Someone else might have caught up with them. I think 18 or 19 movie theaters, a wave, a surfing wave, a mountain to climb. Endless restaurants of every different possible, from sushi to Indian food to fast food to Everything you can imagine. That's different. Where where the pull is, come in here, come in here, come in here. So on retreat, this is a principle the Buddha talked about. Viveka, at least removing oneself. Not out of hatred, but to get in perspective, to remove oneself from some of those pulls going to a secluded place or a suitable place like a like dharmagiri or like our room sometimes the room our room is called a kaya viveka a a retreat for the body safe place so that we then can practice jitta viveka so that we can practice a more profound freedom from these pulls of what we call the longings, the hankerings, and the distress and dejection with relationship to the world, the attractions and the repulsions. Even if we put ourselves into a secluded place, as we know, because we're here and we see, then the body might be away from the gateway mall, but the mind still can travel. Liking, not liking, interested, discouraged. Having energy, then feeling like it's been trapped in a big gallon drum of honey. Maybe not even honey, maybe thick pea soup, you can't even not even The principle is in, in removing oneself and then contemplating the fever of always wanting something or wanting to get rid of something and even contemplating the drawback, the drawback of even when we have see a movie which is exciting and interesting it's it it holds us and then it ends having a nice meal it's it's it pleases the heart but it's so fragile or seeing a nice sight. having a nice memory remember that the uh, purpose of the seclusion was the, the Buddha was encouraging us to find a pleasing abiding in the here and now that is blameless, that doesn't exploit anyone. That's removed from this chasing externally. this profound insight into this aspect of the path came right before the Buddha's enlightenment. It was the turning point of his enlightenment. It set the way for his enlightenment. As you recall from his life story, he was born in a life of luxury. In his first 29 years, he grew up in, as the son of the king or the main chief. He was a prince of sorts. Had every fine thing, the finest silks, the most refined foods. Three palaces, each for a different season. When it was too cold, he had a summer palace. I mean, a, a palace for the winter that was warmer. When it was, he had a rains palace. He had a place to go where it was comfortable. Finest food beautiful beings around him. But even so, at a certain point, he, he realized the limitations of things just being pleasing. He had the what's called the heavenly messengers. It, it penetrated somehow into his being, that even with everything being so beautiful and so refined and so lovely and so perfect, that they were still—at it, it, some point, it crashed into his heart, into his being, the truth of old age sickness and death, what's called the heavenly messengers. Before that point, he realized he just, he just turned away. But at that point, when he saw his mind recoiling, he saw his heart, mind recoiling at a old person, blotched skin, Toothless, crooked, creeping along. He saw his mind revolted, and it somehow penetrated into him. Well, wait, wait a minute. When he realized, I'm subject to that, he described it as the vanity of youth left me, he said. At that point, when he realized, well, what am I revolted by here? Put in perspective these Benares silks that he had, and the finest delicacies to eat, most beautiful. He was surrounded by beautiful women. Similarly, with sickness, he saw himself revolted by someone throwing up with diarrhea. Revolted. Wait a minute. It. Penetrated at some point, it penetrated his heart when he was 29 years old. I'm subject to sickness, too. He saw it, and the vanity of youth left him because he realized it's not becoming of me to be revolted by that, that which is the way it is. Similarly, with death, he was, saw a corpse, people crying, wailing, moaning, again, a tendency to just turn away, turn away to the beautiful colors, to the smooth skin of all the young, healthy people around him, to the fact that there was always attendance, making sure he didn't get too much sun, there were parasols, there was all kind of attendance he had all the time. Saw of turning away, and he again caught himself. What am I revolted at? This, too, is subject to death. It doesn't become me to be like this. He said, the vanity of youth left him at that moment. It's also said that at some point he he met the fourth heavenly messenger, he met an ascetic, a wanderer, or what's called a samanat, and if translated that word, is someone who is tuning themselves, getting in tune with the deeper true nature of things, stilling the heart of its afflictions, cultivating peace. With the sign of renunciation, the shaved head, the ochre robe made from the, the color, from the earthy colors. The serene face. The serene face was a heavenly messenger penetrated into his heart. Something about that ancient archetype, that ancient sign of, of shedding, shedding the adornments, shedding the seductions, shedding the fevers. Stirred something what 's called a heavenly messenger, old age, sickness, death have a message if we take if we, otherwise we just turn away, for the vanity of youth can make us turn away, and then it catches up with us. When, it, when the heavenly message gets through, when we get the message or the message of the ascetic, it makes us pause, whoa. Where is peace? That was a question. The question that arose in the young prince's heart is, is there, is there something that does not get old, does not get sick, does not die? Where is true peace? And then welling up from an ancient ancient commitment an ancient ancient determined quest that goes back lifetime after lifetime in eons it welled up into him this, this conviction this is what i have to do otherwise i'm just living in a dream So at first he he went forth and met some of the local ascetics of the day. He he met some great teachers that taught him very refined states that tended to lift out of the world into very, very refined states where there wasn't even a body anymore of what's called a formless realm. very, very refined meditations on nothingness and uh, neither perception nor non-perception, very, 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 very refined states. And the, the young prince, who was now an ascetic got accomplished at this, but he kept coming down and realizing this is not the true ending of suffering. It's a very refined, blissful state that kept coming down. And then he went the other extreme, the extreme from the pleasures of the palace. He thought, well, what's bringing me down is this body. I need to conquer this pleasure-seeking thing that always gets us fevered so then he he thought that by torturing myself, what's called self-mortification, by enduring more and more pain, I'll will cut this cord that binds me to this realm of birth and death. That's a famous period where he did uh, years of uh, fasting, Just ate less. He was a while eating. Just less and less food, even a small handful, and a few, at times, a few grains even. He got so thin. And he even thought breathing was a luxury for a time, and he was, was uh, consciously just stopping his breath and just seeing what is this attachment to life thing about? Need to stop and just noticing that the, when you kept waiting, just try it for a minute, two minutes, not breathing. When you notice there's this uncomfortable feeling. Where is it? Then it starts permeating the whole body. <coughs> then notice, take a breath, and notice that rush. The Buddha took that to an extreme, just to see this attachment to life and these burning, he described these knives, burning knives that were cutting him up, blowing through these different energy channels, and he starved himself anymore. Got to the point that when he would urinate, he'd fall on his face. When he'd scratch his stomach, he'd feel his backbone. When he scratched scratch his head, the hair would fall out by the roots. And he had tremendous willpower, but he realized this is not, this is not working. I've not attained the peace, the true freedom from suffering that I left home, disappointed my family, that I left home in seeking. So he had the Humility to acknowledge it's not working. So he asked the question Is there another way? Just ask the question Is there another way? So there was the way of pleasure, the way of avoidance, sky rocketing off into this place where you don't even feel the body anymore. It was the way of pain. He asked the question, is there another way? And um, for those of you who know the story, a memory came. It was the turning point of his practice. A memory came from his youth. You remember when he was a child sitting under a rose apple tree at a plowing ceremony, a, plow, a festival day, some sort of harvest festival or something like that, where there were speeches, probably dancing, ceremonial plowing, something like that. And there was all this activity, that, and that's like a ceremonial, a festival like that is like a, for that community was like a gateway day, gateway mall day. It was, a, it was the activity, the laughter, the singing, the speeches, the important ones. those looking for someone to meet. It wasn't evil, wasn't bad, but it was that. And he, as a child, he remembered that he withdrew, this viveka. He decided to remove himself from all the swirling stuff, just to draw back. And he went, pulled back and sat under this lovely shade of a rose apple tree, as he described it. And he remembered that he allowed his attention to return Whereas in the festival where one is talking and looking and eating and smelling and feeling the joy of it, the beauty, he sat under the tree and let his attention return to the simplicity of his body, sitting and breathing. He remembered. And he remembered that he had a thought that just brought him with the innocence of a child. Oh, look at that. Breathing in, breathing out. Hmm. I'm sure as a child he wasn't thinking about this is one jhana, this is this is that. Just the innocence of a child. Ah, oh, look at that. His attention converged. By withdrawing from the multiplicity of this sight, this sound, this smell, this excitement, that's called a multiplicity of objects, converging to the simplicity of, ah. And rapture and happiness arose, born of that seclusion. What does that mean? He remembered that, okay, the energy is a certain way when it's out over here, over here. Oh, yeah, that's the energy is a certain way. When you remove it from being scattered and refracted, when it just turns like this, all that energy is, can well up. Born of that removing is a is a, is a kind of energy that can be called rapture and a kind of ease that can be called happiness, sukha. He remembered that, that state that he went into. And he thought, all those years later, is, when he remembered that, he thought, that's, that's the way. I don't need to be afraid of that pleasure. That pleasure doesn't hurt anyone. Yes, if I want to have that pleasure all the time, if I get attached to it, okay, that'll cause some stress. But I'll, I can realize that. But he knew that that was the path. It's not a question of vaulting yourself out. It's not a question of grabbing at the world. It's not even a question of crushing the world. It was the middle, middle path. But he realized he was too weak even to practice that meditation. He realized he needed to eat something. And he realized he'd been too harsh and just starving himself. And the synchronicity, the beautiful synchronicity, is that just when he realized that he needed to eat something, it said, well, he recorded when he was telling the story to the monks and nuns, is that a young maiden just at that time wanted to make an offering. And she saw this this He was a bit scary looking, I suppose. He looked just gaunt ribcage and probably his eyes were gleaming. He said that the sparkle in his eyes was bright, but it was like at the bottom of a deep well. He must've had huge circles in his eyes. why she saw this ascetic and something about him. She thought, this guy's, he's going for it. And she had some special milk rice. She wanted to make an offering and she saw this ascetic and so she went and offered it to him, and he accepted it. Much to the dismay of his five companions, he did have five companions that thought when Gotama, that was Siddhartha Gotama, when he get, breaks through, he'll tell us the way and then we'll all be free. But they all had bought into this idea that the way was, was just through harshness, through cutting away the world, crushing the defilement of lust, crushing it, because it's all forms of pleasure just trapping us. So they, and that's a hard path, but they were. So then when they saw him accepting from a beautiful maiden and then this most richest of food, you know, when they were eating just little handfuls of food. Maybe rice or something. When he accepted that, that was just—they thought he's really lost it. They were disgusted. He's taken the way of luxury, so they left him. But Siddhartha Gautama trusted himself. He knew. And then uh, Tenisra likes to say that this was a turning point because it was the balancing of the masculine and the feminine. It's a lovely thought that, you know, before, like, matter, form was the problem. You just crush it. But realizing, you know, like, receiving the offering from the maiden, honoring this body not being a slave to it and just chasing, being caught in the fevers of wanting things, but also honoring the body. He nourished himself, gained some strength and then practiced the meditation that we have been practicing today. Just as when you take the sun through a magnifying glass, all those Diffracted rays when they're focused, there's power. Penetrating power. Have you ever done it? As children, we used to all the time get a magnifying glass, focus it, and it just in a in a short time it just burn right through the carpet, much to mom's dismay, or burn right through the paper. So just noticing multiplicity of consciousness. And it's not it's not evil. It's not a question of evil, but if we only know the mind here, the mind here, thinking this, smelling that, excited about going over there, eating a food it tastes so good, we're getting to the next bite, getting to the next bite, hearkening back to, God, that recipe yesterday is not quite like the one yesterday, hearkening back yesterday, aiming to the next one, Not that that's bad, but noticing what happens when the energy starts to, with vitaka, with a guided thought, come back. Here. Come back, body. To start to bring the streams of our being into concordance, convergence. To let our thoughts guide us back here, to this body, sitting, breathing. let our heart, our awareness, be right with the body. Guided by the mind that's saying here. Allowing that energy which is born, all that scattered energy which is born when we remove the attention from that and converge the energy back. Then allowing ourselves to hold that energy by being interested that's the container the interest and in relaxing following the in breath and the out breath stabilizing As that energy wells up, we need to be very patient, but it's been described by one of our teachers, Ajahn Sajita, like a boat on the shore. Like here in Africa, when the tide rises down at Durban, the boat's on the sand, as the tide's rising, it'll start to lift the boat, but it's not risen quite enough yet. The boat, the weight of the boat's still grounded in the sand as the tide rises a little more. Rises a little more, rises a little more. Then at some point it lifts the boat. The power of the tides lifted the boat. If we're patient, patient with, as we digest all this restlessness and the mind being so used to lurching into the future. lurching toward the pleasing, recoiling from the painful. As we patiently allow that to settle, patiently keep reminding the heart, no, 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 no. Won't follow that right now. Just patiently keep encouraging the mind to stabilize back here. As that energy starts to little by little gather, just as the tide lifts the boat at a certain point, that energy will start to feel it lifting us as the energy starts to be held within the body. The Buddha described it as a, he gave similes for this to help us, a vivid image, a simile. He described it as the Bathman in the old days, or the bathman's apprentice. If you wanted a bath, you would go to a place where they were heating water, and they had a tub of hot water. And they had some special, I would love to know what it was, but some special powder or crystals that probably had fragrant oils in them. And the image the Buddha gave is that the bathman also had a a bowl, a lovely brass, golden brass-type bowl, with the powder in it that he would then use. And the Buddha described the sprinkling of that powder or that those crystals with fragrance, sprinkling it, sprinkling it with water, and then kneading it so that it becomes this mass. It starts to become something different. It's being kneaded by the bathman or the bathman's apprentice. But it keeps absorbing the water. The water doesn't drip as one keeps massaging it, massaging it, massaging it, it then becomes something different, fragrant, cleansing. It becomes that which then can wash us. The the image the Buddha gave for this, what we're practicing, which describes uh, the state that the Buddha remembered as a child, that he entered in the what's called the first jhana he says that the meditator enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by, by thought. Remember, thought is directing us to the moment. Thought and exploring. That's feeling out the moment. With rapture and happiness born of this seclusion. The practitioner makes the rapture and happiness born of seclusion drenched, steep, fill and pervade the body so that there's no part of the whole body that is not pervaded by the rapture and happiness born of seclusion. Just as a skilled bathman or a bathman's apprentice heaps bath powder into a basin and sprinkling it gradually with water, kneads it until the moisture wets the ball of bath powder, soaks it, pervades it inside and out. Yet the ball itself does not drip. Or ooze. So too, the practitioner makes this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill, pervade this body so that there is no part of the whole body that is not pervaded by the rapture and happiness born of seclusion. That's the setting a high standard, but just to get a sense of where where we're heading, this bowl, the bowl is the awareness, our mindfulness that's our container. The powder is like the body when it's not really been noticing it feels all disjointed it's not really unified. The sprinkling the powder with Moisture, that's the moments of awareness, moments of noticing. Noticing the in-breath, noticing the out-breath, noticing the tension. The rhythmic kneading the moisture into the ball. That's That's the rhythm of the breath, isn't it? In breath, the in-breath, out the out-breath, in the in-breath, out the out-breath. The moisture is the moments of awareness. Touching, touching. All held within this container. This basin is like the heart. The heart of awareness. Just being very patient. We have ancient habits of thinking that the only place really to find pleasure is is being by the external hit just to practice sensing the fever of that just to practice letting that be and encouraging ourselves to be here the directed thought keeps pointing us back that's that moment of moisture when the thought says hey here and now that splashing the awareness right back to this body. The in-breath, out-breath, noticing the knots, noticing the snags, noticing the hard places, breathing in, relaxing. Remember rapture, the seed of rapture is interest, allowing ourselves to be interested, even if it's heavy, even if it's not so comfortable. Letting that be touched by the moisture of awareness as we're interest. Interest leaves a space. It allows us to hold that heaviness, breathe with it. That's what massages the moisture of awareness through this whole process, this body, and it starts to become something different. There's a, a mysterious alchemy, transmutation that happens when one mixes awareness with body and breath. To be interested and to savor, try to savor even tiredness, allow ourselves to feel that, to breathe with that. Happiness, the seed of happiness is encouraging ourselves to relax. And to be kind. The seed of happiness is this kindness. Remember aversion, aversion just trying to beat ourselves into it. Aversion tends to set more trauma into the system. So if there is aversion, even being kind to the aversion, letting it come and go, These first few days are challenging. But as one is interested in and willing to be with, this heaviness, little by little, gets purified, enlightened. Just as what looks like a heap of powder, what could come out of that if one keeps sprinkling it, sprinkling it and massaging it, it starts to become something different and all the parts then are unified. You can't see the powder anymore. You can't see what's the water anymore. It, uh, it becomes one substance, something different. That's why it's called citta-kāgata. The citta becomes, there's a uni- unification. It's so we're here. The body and mind become connected merged in a sense. Encouraging us to be very patient with ourselves. And even if we don't feel uh, like we're suffused and permeated with bliss, we can trust that that's the important part of the work, is getting and we'll be looking in the next few days at what obstructs us. We'll be looking more carefully at what's obstructing us these currents of aversion and wanting, wanting and not wanting. When struggling with that, don't worry, it's not wasted. That's important work. So we little by little encourage the heart not to be so hijacked by those energies. And, and just to, in moments, be able to be with this process is deepening our capacity to be with how things are deepening our ability to to bear the truth of this experience of being human